You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and this time we've got an episode that we've pulled out of the archives. So I have mentioned quite a few times, I know, that there is quite a backlog of episodes that we've recorded and just haven't been able to put out there yet. What I haven't mentioned is that the backlog in some cases goes all the way back to 2017. So what's happened is that... I record sometimes based on a once a week schedule, but I haven't been able to get the episodes out in that kind of a timely fashion. Now, at times when I've gotten too backed up, I've obviously backed off of recording, so it's not like every episode, you know, not there's like a hundred episodes backed up. It's nowhere near that much. But what would happen is I would then start prioritizing, like, oh, we reviewed a season of a particular TV show, so before the new season comes out, or as soon as possible after the new season comes out, I better get that episode out. And then when I've had some spare time, I've been putting out episodes based on how old they are, and a few episodes have just kind of slipped through the cracks. This is one of them. Now, the part to me that's so disappointing about that is that this is one of the things that I wanted to do from the very beginning of starting the podcast, and it's kind of disheartening slash embarrassing to me that it's taken me so long to get to my first Doctor Who episode. Hopefully, as long as things continue with the release schedule that we have, it won't be anywhere near as long until we get to the second one, but... There it is. I mean, I, I nothing is nearer and dearer to my heart than Doctor Who, and it just seems crazy to me that it's taken this long to get that first episode out there. But the good news is, it's going out there now. The other thing, uh, though, that I have to mention is that, if you recall, back in 2017, I was having sound problems similar to the ones that I'm having again now, where sometimes portions of words would be clipped off of the audio recording. I didn't realize it at the time when I was recording. It was only when I got to edit episodes. I remember the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 episode was one that was plagued by this, which makes sense because it was recorded only a few weeks after this one. And I've already listened a little bit to the audio while I'm recording this. And I know that this Doctor Who episode has the same problem. So it's nowhere near as bad as what we've been seeing on like the Arrow and Black Lightning podcasts. I think it's definitely possible to figure out what we are saying. It's just some of the words, like, you'll only hear, like, one of the, you know, a two- or three-syllable word, you might only hear one syllable. Just things get cut off in weird ways. Words, you only hear half of a word or a portion of a word. Context should give you what, what we're missing there. So if I can't figure out this problem right now uh, with the more recent episodes, 
I'm just going to have to, you know, get a paid service. And, and that's what I'm looking at right now. I hate to do it because I'm kind of strapped right now. Uh, there's been a lot going on over here, but I definitely want the podcast to sound good. So <laughs> we'll see, uh, you know, I'll keep you guys all updated on how that goes. The other thing to keep in mind is since this is a two and a half year old episode, some of the things that people are mentioning about what they're working on and what they do is out of date. Like Michael Faulkner no longer, no longer does the weekly Podioplex. He's much further along in timestamps. He's in the 10th Doctor era now. So all that stuff's kind of moved on. So just keep that in mind uh, when listening to that. So, all right, that was kind of long-winded, but I did feel like everyone deserved a full explanation for what you're about to listen to. Like I say, I think that this is a great episode. I think that, you know, there's a lot of good discussion here. It's just annoying that there's this sound problem where just some of the words get clipped a little bit. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, you know, that's sporadic, but, you know, it's definitely noticeable. But just listen for what we're saying and don't focus on it too much. I know some people get very picky about their podcasts and how they sound, but it's definitely something that we're going to work on here. But, but don't penalize us at this point, please. But uh, all right, so let's join the podcast now. Hello, and welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have a topic coming tonight that is one that I've been wanting to do since the beginning. It's going to start a whole series uh, that we're going to do on Doctor Who, which is my favorite series, franchise, whatever you want to call it, of all time. So I'm really excited about diving into this. But before we do that, let's make our introductions for our cast tonight. First up, hailing from the Satellite of Love, it is the guy that makes fun of movies with bots, and that is Mike Nelson. How are you doing, Mike? Hello, I'm doing good. And I just have to say, you have like this NPR voice start going in. Oh, okay. This nice monotone. <laughs> and then you start getting cheery. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I'm trying to develop my audio presence, so, you know, that's... It's okay, not all of us can sound like a smooth, younger Morgan Freeman. <laughs> oh, that is a compliment! Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I make jokes because your name is the same as the uh, as Mike Nelson from uh, Mystery Science Theater, but are you a fan of that series? I am. I am. I've actually... I, I watched all the collections... And then I started watching uh, Jonah Raisburn. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I haven't started with the new ones on Netflix yet, because we're still watching a DVD set that we got. And so I'm like, well, we'll finish watching this, and then we'll dive into the new Netflix ones. But I by no means have all the collections, because that would be a lot of money. So I'm just watching them as I can. Same. I, for I forget how long they are. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a fun <laughs> show, though. So, you know, I always oh, love it. <laughs> and my favorite is some of them came with like a uh, little collector's minis of the bots. So uh, when we we're going to watch a movie that we think probably is a little on the sketchy side, we'll actually set up the bots on, <laughs> on the table so that we can make fun of the movie with the bots. <laughs> <laughs> like when we saw the Fantastic Four reboot, that, which, you know, if there's any movie that deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. All right. Well, it's good to have you back on, Mike. Good to be here. All right, and next up is um, a guy that I've known through podcasting circles for uh, quite a while now. He reviews all the movies that come out every week, and he was on this podcast a while back to talk about whether or not fandom was broken, and that is Mr. Michael Faulkner. How are you doing, Michael? 
Oh, good, good. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. So it's been about six months or maybe a little more. So uh, has anything, <laughs> what's been going on? Life? Oh, I mean, I've just been keeping busy. I, I've been doing, uh, aside from the, you know, the real world out there, mm. doing the podcast with the Weekly Podioplex on the Chronic Rift Network, and then uh, still going with the Timestamps Project on my blog, where I'm watching every episode of Doctor Who in order from the very beginning. And uh, just, just looking back at today, I've been doing that for nearly three years now. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm up through the fourth Doctor. I'm actually on the 18th series. So I think I'll be posting uh, Megalos this week. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I always love getting the timestamps every week. So that is one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on this podcast today. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. It's it's still fascinating to me that the ones that fandom says are absolutely unwatchable, you'll tend to, even if you give it a low rate, it's not a one. And then some that like fandom says are the pinnacle, you know, you will sometimes uh, be a little harsh with. So it's nice having somebody who's going in fresh without all this baggage and being told what to think about episodes and just sort of giving your opinion. So uh, I do like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little odd when it comes to stuff in fandom. You know, it's like you said, I'll I'll deviate a lot from the norms. Uh, I mean, I am the guy who will defend the Star Wars prequels. So. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it makes for good reading, though, even for me, who's read tons of reviews about the Doctor Who episodes over the years. So definitely like to see the fresh take on things. Yeah, well, thanks. You're welcome. But it's good to have you back on the show. Pleasure to be here. All right. And next up is someone who has never been on the podcast before. He's someone that I've known for, ooh, um, I'm going to say 18 years, I think. Getting close to 20, man. Yeah. We met on a internet news group. And kids, if you don't even know what used groups were, uh, news groups are, or what Usenet was, the you know, that's all in the ancient days of the internet. And then he happened to move uh, within a few miles of where I lived, and we've been talking Doctor Who that whole time. He's, uh, he's a doctor of history. And a farmer, so that is my friend Eric Cheesum, uh, Dr. Eric Cheesum. How are you doing, Eric? Very well, thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. So, Eric, since this is your first time on the podcast, why don't you say a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I guess I'm a historian largely because of Doctor Who. I grew up watching series, and then um, I think it was the War Games, really, the, the final Patrick Troughton serial that kind of, I don't know, kind of connected with me somehow, and... Um, I decided to uh, become a history major in college and then went on to graduate school and uh, got my PhD in history at the University of South Carolina. And I, I generally do sort of uh, turn of the century U.S. progressivism and World War One, which is the connection to the war games. But somehow I ended up writing a dissertation about sea monsters, <laughs> which is uh, a little unusual. Not, not the kind that live in Loch Ness. No, the one, the one that lives in the Chesapeake Bay. Right, apparently. exactly. <laughs> it's a Zygon <laughs> plot. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's sort of a second-rate sea monster. So, uh, yeah, I have kind of an unusual set of interests when it comes to history. And I help run the family farm, too. So uh, kind of an eclectic life. And I love Doctor Who. And I... Oh, you asked about nerd things. I'm probably an... I'm great for a Doctor Who podcast, but I'm, I'm not especially nerdy about a lot of other things. I love 1960s British espionage type stuff. So the Avengers is a, uh, a close, close to my heart. And I love the prisoner and, and uh, sort of British costume drama type things like that. But I I'm, I'm, would be really useless to you if you asked to comment too much on Star Wars, which I love. But I'm a casual fan. 
Yeah, I mean, you like Star Trek and Babylon Five, and you know stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I should. I forgot about them. Yeah. Um. In fact, I uh, I just went out to the fiftieth uh, Star Trek con out in Las Vegas back in the summer. Yeah, I saw the pictures. That was an interesting experience, and I learned that Star Trek fandom is quite different from Doctor Who fandom. So <laughs> maybe we can comment on that some more later. <laughs> That is an interesting, you know, I want to do a podcast at some point that is a podcast on cons, because I think that they do actually have different, there's a lot of variety. It's not like if you go to a con, you know what a con is like, because it has to do with the fandoms, it has to do with the people running it, there's all kinds of things that can make the experience completely different from con to con. But yeah, definitely any observations you have on who fandom and how it relates to other fandoms and whatnot would be interesting. Well. I don't suppose I'm a great expert on Who fandom, really, because I've only ever been to the one Gallifrey convention. But, uh, but even still, having been immersed in the kind of the literature of fandom over the last 25 years, you know, you sort of get a sense for for the the the, the tenor, I guess, of of fandom. <laughs> the flame wars. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Those days when the authors would be on the Usenet groups and they would like not only fight with the fans, but with each other, which was always interesting. I'm surprised you didn't mention, though, that you're a published author also. Oh, well, I, did, I don't want to bore everybody. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a published author and someday hope to publish a little bit more. But it's, you know, I, I'm a very minor expert on Woodrow Wilson and his presidency, so I've, I've written a book about that and tried to write a big Finnish audio about that, but they didn't like it. So, you know, farm for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having Eeyore on the podcast. <laughs> oh, but it's good to have you on, Eric. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm such a virgin at this that i'm i'm probably gonna make a fool of myself but hold my hand nathan okay <laughs> you'll do fine eric and virgin <laughs> being another doctor who reference because of the oh. virgin publishing company that published doctor who books <laughs> but uh anyway <laughs> and erotica well know. yes i know that's their two lines that they published <laughs> so it's that was the oddest place for the Doctor Who novels to come from. But that's a whole other story. So, anyway. So, yeah, now that uh, everyone's introduced themselves, it's time for this episode's five questions. And for those of you who are only five questions or just joining us, it's just a way for us to uh, sort of loosen up before the podcast and also we'll give the listeners just a little bit of an insight into each of us and the things they like or don't like. So I've got a string of a hundred questions that a random number generator just kind of spits out five of. And all the questions have only two possible answers, so it forces us to sort of pick a side, as it were. So... Let's go on this one, Mike, then Michael, then Eric. All right. All right. Superman or Batman? You jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. Batman. Batman. Superman. I'm also Batman. So Eric has the minority report. Why Superman? I grew up with Superman. I'm I'm a big Super Friends fan, so I see I'm going to slowly show you what a giant nerd I really am. But, uh, I said, I'm not That's nervous, part of the point of this. But, yeah, I, just, I love the triumphal Americanness of Superman. I totally get it. All right, next. 
You guys, you guys might not like this one. It might, <laughs> but I threw it in because of my kids. So, Pokemon or Digimon? Ooh. Oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I think, I think you broke me. You completely broke okay. me. Okay. Uh, Digimon. I was gonna throw it. Digimon. 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 Okay. I have very little experience with Pokemon. I have no experience with Digimon, so Pokemon wins. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good reason. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. I, I don't really know much about either of them, except one of them has Pikachu in it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, for me it's Pokemon also, because I never watched either when I was, uh, you know, when they were first coming out. I've been watching Pokemon because of my kids, so for me it's Pokemon as well. So, Mike, why is Digimon better? I like them a lot better, more of the team, the team dynamic and how their evolutions worked. And me being a tech guy, it's I one of their characters, I can't remember his name, I want to say it was Izzy, but that sounds completely wrong because it sounds feminine. He was like the tech guy. He was he has computer, his app, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew the word teraflop, and I'm like, oh god, he's my he's my dude. And I just liked it a lot better than following some kid who never ages and who really needs <laughs> to up with Misty and never does. <laughs> you know, it is my daughter's biggest problem with Pokemon that Ash is 10 years old. There's been like, you know, a thousand episodes now and he's still 10 years old. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's like Bart Simpson, but anyway. <laughs> Alright, third question. Better social media? Facebook or Twitter? Hmm. Uh, Twitter. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. It's Facebook for me, too. So, uh, Mike, why Twitter? I, I got suckered into Twitter. Actually, it was peer pressure from my old uh, my old co-host uh, from my other show. Mm -hmm. And I first follow was to John Favreau when he was doing Iron Man 2. And he was, like, showing all these awesome behind-the-scene pics. I'm like, wait, is this on my Facebook? He's not posting this on Facebook. Oh, John, you're my, you're my buddy. And that really com completely won it for me. And now I've just been 140 characters. I can do it. Okay, yeah, because that's my big problem with Twitter is I... That's why I'm barely ever on there is because the 140 characters, I can't... A lot of times I'm frustrated trying to think how to reword whatever I'm trying to say in 140 characters. And it becomes more frustrating than anything else. And I'd rather just write I've used Facebook. the ampersand so much. And I'm like, this is what you're used for. All right. Thanks, Twitter. <laughs> well, I guess I can't fault you on that. <laughs> All right. Fourth question. Better 60s spy drama, Avengers or The Man from Uncle? Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Eric got excited with this one. You know, I've, I've actually been a huge Man from Uncle fan. Really? That's awesome. I never knew that about you. Mm hmm you know, so not a lot of people know Man from Uncle except the uh, remake movie that came out. So that's and cool. We'll talk about it some other time. <laughs> we'll talk about it offline. <laughs> All right. So Michael, I have no experience with either of these. I I know the Avengers better just from pop culture than I do Man from Uncle. So we'll go with the Avengers. Okay. Uh, it's a it's a toss up if you're going for drama, but the Avengers has to win every time, purely for style and and sophistication. Yeah, I'm an Avengers man myself, although I like both quite a bit but yeah it's just i mean 
this is me trying to watch anything and everything British when I'm like 10 years old because I love Doctor Who so much and so I'm watching British comedies, I'm watching Red Dwarf, and I'm watching The Avengers, which was coming on A&E of all places, you know, we get the, you know, The Avengers on that channel and, you know, I, I just loved that show I fell in love with it, uh, I think uh, Steed was awesome I thought the whole style of it was awesome so yeah, but I like Man From U.N.C.L.E. too so that's pretty cool, Mike Alright, Better Modern Sherlock Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch? Dog. <laughs> you know what? No, it's not. It's. I don't even know why I even had to think about it. No, Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay. Uh, Robert Mike. Downey Jr. Okay. Cumberbatch, but mainly because I love his mother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that sounds like the name of a sitcom there. Who, who of the great 60s babes? Oh, okay. What was she in? She was Thea Ransom in Image of the Fendal. How about that? Oh, really? Or Gene Rock in The Faceless Ones. And okay. Yeah, no, I mean, Faceless Ones is not... Uh, I, there's only the two episodes. Was she Was she in either of the two existing ones? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the name is not ringing a bell. Gene Rock is the uh, secretary or whatever to the commandant. Oh, okay. Alright, so that's interesting. For me, it's Robert Downey Jr., and that is more because I prefer Sherlock Holmes in a Victorian sense. So, kind of a cheat, because it has nothing to do with the actors themselves. <laughs> I do like what Robert Downey Jr. did with the role. Uh, with the first movie, I think, is fantastic. The uh, second movie has news, but I love Robert Downey Jr. in both of them, so I'll go with that. Alright, so that's a five question successfully completed. And uh, so before we dive into our topic, we are going to pause for a minute to play a promo from another fine podcast. Hello, America. Do you like listening to knowledgeable people who are passionate about what they do? Wilbur does, don't you, Wilbur? But what about Daisy? She likes to listen to shows about pop culture, movies, television, and comic books. Good thing Wilbur and Daisy found the Nerd Bliss Podcast. You, too, can find the Nerd Bliss Podcast at nerdblisspodcast.com and on the ESO Network. Just remember, Nerd Bliss is one word. And we're back. So, uh, like I was saying at the beginning of the episode, uh, I've wanted to talk about Doctor Who since I started the podcast. And since it's such a big topic to talk about, it's a franchise with hundreds of episodes, uh, hundreds of novels. There are comic books, audio dramas, all kinds of things. You know, wrapping my hands around how do you discuss Doctor Who, you know, in an efficient manner was kind of difficult at first, but I decided that I'd just break it up by Doctor. At least in the beginning, uh, I might end up doing uh, something about the extra canonical material and such, but feared that a good way to start is in the beginning. So we're talking about the first Doctor's era this time. 
So just before uh, before we start uh, really talking about various topics about the era, I just wanted to get a feeling for everyone's exposure to it. So why don't we start with you, Eric, and then go Michael, then Mike. Just talk about when did you first watch the episode? Did you have any prior Doctor Who knowledge beforehand? And what you sort of feel about the era? My very first exposure to Doctor Who was the creature from the pit, actually. And one wonders why I stayed with it, although I love that story. But I went from that to, in the very early 80s, to the late 80s. I happened to stay up late. In Maryland, they ran Doctor Who at 11.30 on Saturday night. And I happened to be up late and caught The Ark, which is uh, late season three. And then The Gunfighters the next week and The War Machines. And of course, The War Machines plugged into my my Avengers obsession, my 60s espionage obsession, and I really became a fan of Doctor Who because of those three stories. And from that point on, the MPT, Maryland Public Television, cycled through at least once. Yeah, I think it was just the once. So in 1992, they ran, that was in late 89. In 1992, they ran from the very beginning, and I was able to pick up everything that existed then from an unearthly child all the way, you know, through the through the totality of the series. But I I've always been I'm I really am very into black and white film and and television uh, and vintage television in general. So to me, those black and white serials, which were edited together in movies for for us at that point, they were really uh, they spoke to me in a very basic way. And and of course, I was young. I was again in my teenage years. I was staying up on a Saturday night, so I was kind of flexing my independence a little bit, and it was just me and the television in a dark room with these images and these stories, uh, and they seemed so foreign and, and fantastic, and I just, I never looked back. So for me, the, the Hartnell era and the Troughton era and Pertwee, the first year or so of Pertwee, are really the, the sweet spot of Doctor Who. Uh, I mean, I love all of the series, and um, even the new series, although I don't love it as much. But, but that, that black and white era is really the sweet spot of the series for me. And I love it, every bit of it. I'm just going to interject here and just ask, did you find it jarring when you were young with the fact that there were missing stories in Hartnell's run and how you would just skip, you know, because the serials were so interconnected in that period that they would just skip and just without any explanation or anything? Yeah, it, it was jarring. I mean, particularly the arc, you know, ends with the uh, the pickup of the Celestial Toymaker, and I, I it just could never quite work my head around that one. <laughs> and But I, I think I must have just assumed that they hadn't shown it or they they were showing them out of order or that I had just maybe not set the recorder for the, you know, for the, the rest of the night or, you know, whatever way I rationalized it. It helps, I guess, to understand that Maryland Public Television ran the series in order generally. But WETA, which was a public station out of Washington, D.C., they ran them randomly. And so I maybe maybe on some level I thought that they had just been running them randomly that week or whatever. I, I don't know. I, there was no one there to tell you that you were missing stories. You know? So I don't, I don't know. I, it's... It was jarring, but you sort of got your head around it somehow. I actually got to call the PBS station and ask them what was going on. <laughs> because, you know, everything before, because I had actually started with Baker and Tom Baker and, uh, you know, it went through and looped around to Hartnell. 
And so I knew that they showed the episodes in order, and so I was confused, like, why are we skipping stuff? You know, how? why is this not matching up? So it, it bothered me to that degree. Of course, I was like six or something by that point, so I was I was a, bit, a little bit younger. But yeah, my dad, I, I, he, I gotta say, you know, if he's not into geeky stuff anywhere near to the same extent I am, he did humor me on quite a few things like that. <laughs> Also, sending the VCR to record, or, uh, you know, Doctor Who for me, which was very nice, because it came out in lock where I lived, so my parents would not let me stay up that late. Well, I think one of, the, one of the peculiar things about Doctor Who fans is that, in America at least, is that we all be- learned how to run VCRs, right. you know, in fine detail, long before parents ever did. Right. Uh, because it was, it was necessary in order to catch the series in a lot of cases, and, and then to be able to rewatch them. Yeah. I wish I had had the foresight to keep them recorded, but we would record over them with next week's episode. So when we ended up moving from Florida and moved to South Carolina where they weren't showing it anymore, we had like two stories that were still on tape, and that's all that I have for many years. That's musings on, you know, uh, old school Who fandom there. Uh, so, Michael, let's go uh, on to your uh, story of the Hartnell era. Well, uh, you know, we, we've talked before about my, my history with Doctor Who. When I was a. Uh a kid in the 80s, I heard about, you know, this show, Doctor Who. And I asked, you know, some people before that, I was like, okay, what is this Doctor Who? It sounds kind of weird. And they told me it was just boring British sci-fi. And so I never got involved with it, right? Even mm-hmm. though it was on PBS and everything else, I never even bothered looking at it because, you know, you trust your elders. <laughs> it's come about uh, 2009 or so, I'm at a convention, I think it was Dragon Con, and uh, people are talking about this again. And I'm like, okay, this Doctor Who, what's going on? And they explained how it had launched, you know, and everything about four years prior. And how it was going to Netflix at that time. And I was like, well, I've got Netflix. Let me give it a shot. So my wife and I sat down. We sat with Eccleston's episodes. And we plowed right through. We continued watching all the New Who stuff. And then um, back about 2014, you know, I said, okay, I've heard so much about this you know, older era of Doctor Who. They're bringing a lot of it into the new stuff. I need to really understand what's going on there. So that's when I, I jumped in. It was in the end of March and beginning of April of 2014 just started walking straight through. I got the episodes and even the reconstructions. I said, you know what? I'm going to make a project to this. Let's go with it. And that's that's how Timestamp started. And I, I plowed through as, as best I could, even with a, a massive hard crash that, that wiped out the entire collection. <laughs> um, yeah, I was able to get the collection back from a friend of mine and, and carried on. And, and here we are now. So that's, you know, it was really interesting going from, oh, it's just this boring sci-fi, which I can understand why people were saying it was because yeah, it's it's a lot than today's science fiction is. Even in the eighties, it was you know a lot slower. But I've I've really enjoyed watching it. You know, it's, it's been a good kind of trip of the time machine. Yeah. What was the um? Oh, I might be putting you on spot here, but what was the overall rating for the Hartnell era? Because didn't you take an average of all the stories at the end? Yeah. For people who don't know the Time Stamps project, I grade grade each serial one to five, uh, one being the lowest, and. Then I take a, a weighted average because, you know, someone like Tom Baker's got, you know, was it seven or eight seasons worth of material? Seven, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, some of the other doctors have two or three, or in, in Hartnell's case, three seasons and two episodes or two serials. And so I weighted the averages out to make it a little fair. And Hartnell's came out to a 3.41, which, you know, it's um, not quite sure how he, how he falls out with the rest of the doctors so far. I don't know those numbers in front of me, but yeah, he was a. It's it's still slightly above average. I mean, it's it's, it's good. It was surprising. No, I know, and that's the thing, and that's one of the things that I really appreciated about timestamps is that I tend to hear people who are coming to Doctor Who later being very harsh with the Hartnell era, but I also suspect because uh, most of the ones that I've actually spoken to about it watch the first serial and give up on the whole thing. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about some of your insights because I think that they are uh, fairly important, I think, for anyone who might be interested in getting into uh, the older series. But I did like that about uh, the timestamps is that I think overall Hartnell ended up being more favorable than Troughton in your reviews, which from fandom's perspective is a little bit from the typical uh, opinion. So kind of interesting there too. But you are also a fan of 60s television though, right? A little bit here and there. I don't know about the British side of, of 60s television. I do know a little bit more about, you know, the American side, because that's really how my sci-fi bug, you know, kind of kind of latched on was, you know, my dad and I would get up on Sunday mornings and watch Lost in Space and Star Trek, the original series reruns. Mm-hmm. And it was really good kind of, turn me on to oh this is this is sci-fi this is you know this is the fun stuff that's going on and then as as i grew older and continued to you know i i grew up in the 80s so as it was 20 years and a lot of the stuff that i i continued to watch was you know 60s 70s 80s type of shows across the spectrum of genres Mm -hmm. yeah no and that was one of the things that i remembered you telling me before about that and even though i realized that even in the 60s american television british television were different I do think that having that love for older television helps with getting into uh, the Hartnell era. Yeah. But Mike, how about you? Well, nothing <laughs> to... As a young buck here, apparently. <laughs> I, mean, I fell into Doctor Who because of Tenet, and I don't even think it was a... Fr- n- no one introduced it to me. It was just something that just came on because I was, I was just flipping through channels. I'm like, oh, let me just watch this real fast. Oh, he's a cool chap. And I fell hell over heels. Tenet was my initial doctor. And then at the time I was living with my ex and her and her father. And I went down and to him was like, hey, did you check out the show? I'm like, Doctor Who? Yeah, I know all about that. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, well, they just started off with this doctor. He's like, yeah, he's number 10. What do you mean number 10? There's 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 nine other ones? Like, yeah, man, this is like back from like six to seven. He's like, I'll be right back. <laughs> took, me two, took me two hours and i have 260 gigs worth of gigs on my hard drive for doctor who seasons one through 26 and doctor who series one through including the movies <laughs> now weren't there some gaps though in what you got because i remember you talking about you know when you were watching it i went back through and the gaps were on hulu because mm-hmm. hulu put on all seasons and i'm like oh this is great but then of course, I've went through all the seasons, all one through twenty-six. God, I can't believe I did that. But Hulu miss Hulu was missing some episodes. I'm like, this was no. Where did we get introduced to? Where did this companion come from? Where's the no? I went back through my list, through my. I'm like, yep, you missed this. I went to Nathan about it. I'm like, Hulu messed up, man. It's missing this episode. <laughs> this episode. It's missing a whole series here. We get introduced to Jane Smith. And we have no idea where she came from. Thanks, Hulu. <laughs> Leela was the one that struck me because you were like, who is this woman? Where did she come from? Because I think it skipped you past yeah. the face of evil and uh, robots of death. So yep. <laughs> yeah, so you're just introduced to her randomly. So yeah, I looked into it after you told me and yeah, I found that they had lots of gaps, which I'm guessing that's because of agreements they had with Netflix that they weren't allowed to show the same, you know, the ones that Netflix had who couldn't have, which kind of stinks. Yeah, bureaucracy. Yeah. But because of that, going back through, and I start off with William Hartnell, and well, I, the first words I, I said to my ex, I'm like, "This is so dry. It's <laughs> it's so dry." <laughs> but I pushed through, and I definitely them. If I had to go back through, it's like I would. I rewatched the first stuff uh, yesterday and some this morning, and I was like, "Yeah, man, 
Capaldi's doing it right. He's channeling his first, he's channeling his older self or younger kind of weird time age. He's doing good. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you, were you able to catch the ones that you had missed, or are there still gaps? Yes. Okay. No, I, no, no more gaps. I went through Hulu's run, and I'm like, screw this. Went back to mine. Yeah. Well, that is except for the ones that are actually missing. With people don't know what we're talking about with missing stories, the BBC and their infinite wisdom in the 1970s wanted to make room in the vaults, and it was costly to maintain the videotape that Doctor Who was originally uh, recorded on in many of their other programs. And so they decided that, well, any stories that are so old, they've already made whatever overseas sales that they're going to have. And in those days, you never really re-ran many television shows. So they saved a few stories that they felt were of historical significance and basically destroyed everything else from the first six scenes of Doctor Who and even some of the Pertwee stuff. Now, the Pertwee stuff has all been recovered, at least in black and white. But the Hartnell and Troughton uh, serials are still missing quite a few of the episodes. I believe it's 97 episodes are still missing from between both Doctors. And what makes that even worse, though, is that it's not just a straight 97. A lot of times it'll be like one or two from this serial and one or two from that serial. So, you know, those serials aren't usually shown or, or put into bundles because, you know, they're missing the middle or the beginning or the end of the story. Now, the audio is available for all of those stories because people used to record off-air with tape recorders. So because of that, um, BBC have released audio CDs for those stories with narration to explain anything that's going on the screen that you can't tell from the sounds what's going on. And uh, there have also been some fans who have taken that audio and done what they call telesnap reconstructions taking the photos that came with those stories, pairing them up with the audio so that you can have as close to the experience of watching it as possible. Now, Michael, you watched the uh, telesnaps, is that correct? Yeah, I had the reconstructions. Even the the Marco Polo with the actor who played Marco sitting down in a kitchen with a curtain drawn to kind of look dramatic Mm -hmm. and uh, and doing the (laughs) intro. Right. But uh, Eric, you've heard all of them with the BBC CDs, right? Yes, actually, uh, I have, I guess it was back before Christmas, I started a marathon myself and watched all of the reconstructions as well, which was, uh, I had seen a few of them, but so I had never done a full review with reconstructions, so I've done that recently, too. Okay. All the loose cannon ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the, they're the only group that did everything. Those reconstructions are really fine pieces of work in, in most cases. Um, they are. It's, yeah. it's, uh, I was that's, really thrilled. Yeah, that's the majority of what my stuff is when it comes to the first and second Doctor. Was a lot of it was the reconstruction, just still frames while the audio. Oh, okay. See, I didn't realize, because you told me you were getting your stuff from Hulu. I didn't think that you had the reconstructions either, Mike. Oh, no. No, I, like, I just, the Hulu, I've had actually my collection before Hulu did theirs. And that's when I realized that there were some episodes missing, and I wanted to confirm with you as well. Okay. So, because I was like, it was on Hulu. So, because it's 260 gigs, I can't lug that thing around. I have a heart. <laughs> I can't watch that at work. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so Eric, since you've seen, because even I've only listened to the Daleks Master Plan on CD, I haven't listened to any of the other CDs because the reconstructions were free. 
So I favored those just because it didn't hurt my pocketbook uh, much. But, you know, for as far as the overall experience, uh, what, how, what would you say about uh, are the reconstructions versus the audios? Well, I, I think they're sort of two different media for two different kind of purposes. You know, the, the, the soundtrack only is for the sort of person that, you know, is, is on a long drive or, you know, that sort of thing. Or alternatively, the, the purest. Uh, which I guess, as <laughs> you might call me a purist, Nathan, I know you probably will call me a purist. <laughs> yes, I, I'm shocked you watched a reconstruction personally because you used to be really down on them. <laughs> well, it's because I never felt like the uh, fidelity of the image was very good. You know, they mm. were like millionth generation videotapes, whereas now they're you know they're digital and they're on uh, YouTube or wherever. But I committed this time around to doing a kind of totally visual experience of, of who. And I, I really wanted to position the, the two recently recovered Troutons in a visual kind of context. Mm-hmm. So I, I made a point of starting with the reconstructions and uh, working my way through them. And I'm actually in the middle of the web of fear right now. I you know looking for the immersion in the era, you really should go with the reconstructions because they are, I think they're good enough to, to really support a total rewatch of the series now. Well, I think Shannon deserves a lot of credit for pulling out all the technological tricks that they can think of to try to recreate some of the stories, especially the ones that don't have much visual material. Yeah. You know, and trying to make those come alive, either with CGI or with clever editing of pictures from other stories to insert you know, uh, actors and, you know, who were in other stories into, <laughs> you know, into the one that where they're in at this point like that, so that they can at least create something that's visually interesting as well as telling the story. I really thought that the Mythmakers and Master Plan and the Massacre were absolutely top-notch pieces of work. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, the Mythmakers especially me over for some reason. I, I think partly because I've never had a really good idea of what that serial looked like. I mean, the the only picture I can really visualize in my head is the, the horse, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really got a sense of what the sets looked like and how the staging might have been. And, and it was it was a really, really fine piece of work. Yeah. So now that we've sort of talked about our backgrounds with the era, I want to talk a little bit about Hartnell himself. Now, I mentioned a lot of people get kind of a culture shock if they're coming to Doctor Who. And this is true even for people who got into Doctor Who with Tom Baker or onward. Going back and watching the era can be a little jarring, um, especially if you start with an unearthly child, because the character of the Doctor seems to be at such at odds with what we kind of expect now from Doctor. He's angry a lot. He is selfish. There's the very famous scene from the first serial where it looks pretty much like he's going to crush the tin with a rock, <laughs> you know. And that sort of violence is something that we don't normally see from the Doctor. So I just wanted your thoughts, um, and we can make this more of an open forum kind of thing, about Hartnell himself and how his Doctor, you know, do you do you feel like he was uh, sort of abnormal from other Doctors, or do you see how... If you watch the whole series as a whole, he sort of fits in with the evolution of the Doctor to what we know now. If we need someone to start, Michael, you can start. Yeah, I think Hartnell really grows into the role. 
like I said, in the, in the first season, he is very rough and he's, he's kind of grandfatherly throughout his run, but he's very, mm-hmm. you know, angry grandfather, like, you know, get off my lawn kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, mo- the moment when, when, um, the, the companions start complaining, you can never get us home. He's like, all right, you don't like this. There's the door. Get off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's him in the first season. And, and you know, you get to season two and season three and, and right around the time of his regeneration, he really is often up a bit and he becomes uh, a little bit more of what we expect to see from the doctor. You see, you see the, the seeds that are planted there and coming from the ninth and 10th and 11th doctor's perspective, you know, where, where I kind of grew up with who <laughs> in a sense, you know, you think about, you know, the, the history they kind of lay out there about, you know, okay, why, why is he out there doing this? Why, why was he starting his flight among the you know, time and space? And you kind of understand at that point, right, the cannon back around that, okay, maybe he's angry about something quite big because he's, he's on the run from his people. You know, he's, he's stole the TARDIS and he's, he's out doing his thing. He's really independent. Well, why? And you can kind of rationalize some of it away, but as far as the actor goes, yeah, I think he, I think he goes into it. I think he, he molds that myth around himself and becomes more comfortable with his, with his own skin. Mm. I think it also goes with the actor himself. Yeah. Just learning to get into the role. I'm not really sure how much truth was really into that behind the scenes, little short movie that they did with the making of Dr. Who on how everything came about. Yeah. an adventure in space and time. They took a lot of liberties with the story. Yeah. So yeah, from and and I took that as like a half truth, but then I go back and watch the first se- first serial, and it's like you know he is kind of angry. Mm. It's like is this is this the actor playing himself playing the doctor or an actor playing the doctor? It's, he he is he's very very angry, and I don't know why he's angry about. He just never I never found why the lion had that thorn in his paw. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the damn kids on the lawn. That's probably what right. It is. <laughs> damn, damn Susan bringing these other two people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Susan was a bit of a handful, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> that woman. <laughs> Eric? Well, as you know, I sort of object to the way that the character of the Doctor was reinterpreted towards the end of the original series and mm-hmm. into the modern series. The notion of the Doctor as this sort of supremely ethical figure is really at odds with the first five or six Doctors. And I think it kind of smacks of people overlaying their politics on to the series in a way that wasn't really done until the mid to late 80s. And so to me, the Hartnell Doctor is the original. I mean, it is the character. Most of them are not perfections necessarily, but they are um, descendants of that character. They're they're sort of reiterations of it rather than, um, you know, a a gradual perfecting of, of the idea. And so, for me, the the angry, slightly homicidal, um, you know, dangerous character that you see in that first scene is really the character I like the most. Mm-hmm. And he sort of disappears for the Troughton and, and Pertwee era, and then suddenly Tom Baker arrives, and he's a kind of a dangerous, you know, somewhat anti-heroic figure again. Um, I, I was thinking recently about how Baker was channeling Hartnell a little bit in uh, the Seeds of Doom mm-hmm. when he they're, they're standing there trying to do the um, surgery on, on uh, whatever the character's name is that's gotten infected by the, the plant. And he says really quite darkly, you must help yourselves. And uh, 
that's a really horrible Baker impression. Sorry, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> fine. My voice is not manly enough to do that. But the loss of that dangerous character, I think, does not help the series. I mean, I, I'm not saying I love Troughton and Pertwee and Davison and you know the rest of them. Because that do. would be blasphemy. Pardon? Mm-hmm. I said because that would be blasphemy. That would be blasphemy. <laughs> but I, I think that really Hartnell's character is the authentic doctor mm-hmm. and the rest of them never quite match that character again. Yeah. But what I mean, I guess what I was trying to talk about a little bit more was that I think that people over just how nasty Hartnell's doctor was because while there is that side to him and it's definitely at its strongest in an unearthly child, he mellows a lot and very quickly um, after Edge of Destruction and then again once Ian and Barbara leave the character becomes you know more friendly overall more funny he becomes a you know more of a leader than uh, sort of the antagonist that he started out as and I think that there's uh, several reasons for that you know, one is, I think the original conception of Doctor Who was that Ian and Barbara were more of the stars, and the Doctor was more like Dr. Smith on Lost in Space. He was someone that was there to sort of get them into trouble all the time. <laughs> and, you know, he, the, the Ian and Barbara, as the people from modern-day Earth, were the ones that you were supposed to be following the show for. You were following their adventure with this crazy man and his granddaughter, and the true heroes of the piece. But especially after they leave, you know, first, well, there's two things. One is the show was much more serialized back then than it became later. And people had real character journeys. And then one of the things, uh, Michael, that your timestamps touched on that I really enjoyed was you talked about your experience watching the Aztecs as just a show that or a series watched, you know, out of context completely, and then watching it as part of the timestamps and how your opinion on the story completely changed because of that. In that, when once you sort of have the serial and you're watching the series serials progress, the characters are changing and dynamic. And I think that that was uh, you know, a decision they made was to mellow the Doctor's character as he progressed because if he was that nasty through the whole s- series, the show couldn't have sustained itself, in my opinion. Well, one of the, one of the things I, I kind of pointed out too when I, when I summarized the first Doctor at the end of The Tenth Planet was that he is that curmudgeonly grandfather. You know, he, he does have that air about him and he is, he is very grumpy. But what they did with his character throughout the the three seasons and then two serials that he was in was that they show that he has a capacity to love and care for people, but only once he respects them. And that Mm -hmm. was the thing that really jumped out of me with this character was that it's, it's not just a, a simple judgment on people. It's you have to prove yourself to him. You have to prove that you're capable of surviving on your own and to helping out with what he's trying to do. And once that wrecked for you, it's, yeah, okay, yeah, you're on board. Let's, let's do this. Yeah, I mean, I think The Edge of Destruction is a really good serial to bring up for that because despite the fact that the plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense, the scenes between the characters is a story that's just about the four people in the TARDIS at that point. And, you know, it gets really to the sort of heights of drama there as they're all thinking that the others are the ones that are causing the trouble going on there. But that's where we also get to the sort of catharsis where the Doctor has been again in Barbara from the beginning and at that point once he realizes that barbara has valid opinions and gains her respect you know that's when everything gets a lot better among the four characters you know that's when their entire relationship and dynamic changes 
A woman with an opinion? How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, here's the thing. I've heard people who have gone back and watched 60s Who and said, like, it's so incredibly sexist, except that some of the most amazing female characters have come from that. I would hold Barbara up against many modern characters as an example of a strong woman. You know, I mean, Barbara is right a lot of the time when the doctor is. is wrong. And that's one of the things that I really love. The other thing I really love about those early Doctor Who stories is with Hartnell, you could actually have legitimate tension between the Doctor and the Companion. Whereas after we kind of get to the Pertwee era, and the Doctor is sort of... It's considered that the Doctor is right almost always. And it just... As the series progresses even beyond that, it gets more and more that way, in my opinion, where it's like, if you're not on the side of the Doctor, you are wrong. You can question the Doctor or say that he's wrong, but the series is basically telling you, you know, you're wrong. Except for the Seventh Doctor era where it gets a little murky again. Nathan, I think partly that's because the series stops being a drama and really turns into an adventure serial. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Uh, really, the the last time that there's any real tension in, in the TARDIS, real tension, is the evil of the Daleks, right? When uh, Jamie questions Trout about, you know, why he's doing what he's doing with the Daleks. You know, and then after that, basically, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Doctor is the hero figure, and, and you can't question his ethics or anything else, which is kind of ironic, because the Troughton Doctor is one of the the most homicidal... <laughs> and it's the thing that's funny about that is that he's not only is he homicidal in the show but then he you know when they did the comics that that's like the one thing they they pulled out of his character there's that famous comic where i think it's the giant alien spiders or whatever they are and he he you know screams die spider die anyway i digress but uh, (laughs) i digress no, that's no, it's fine though. I mean, I mean, but in the Hartnell era, you get several, you know, fairly dramatic situations like that. The massacre is another example where Stephen's ready to just dump the whole thing because of all the, you know, the choices the Doctor has made that's led to several deaths that he's just witnessed in mm-hmm. uh, the Daleks master plan, and then in the massacre itself, where they basically leave this woman to die, or in mind, he's assuming she's going to die because the Doctor says, "Hey, we're just going to leave her." You know, in my mind, you know, my own interpretation of that is that the Doctor has just experienced so much loss that he doesn't want to take someone new on the TARDIS, you know, because he doesn't want to allow himself to be hurt like that again. But Simon just sees us, hey, you know, we could have taken this girl with us and you left her in the middle of this brutal massacre that's happening. And that's, you know, when he learns that Dodo might be a descendant, that's enough for Stephen to be like, okay, well, maybe I'll stay. But (laughs) it's a little goofy there. But that scene, though, in the massacre, even though it only exists in audio now, is really powerful, both with Stephen leaving and then the doctor's monologue talking about how everybody leaves him in the end. You know, really, really fantastic performance by Hartnell in the role. I've always talked, and remember I came from, like, Tennant and even Eccleston, because I rewatched that stuff as well, and I really didn't know the fury of the Doctor until I went to Hartnell, and it was the Daleks we first introduced to them, and Hartnell is just, like, telling the Thals, hey, you need to fight them. Like, wait, the Doctor doesn't do that. We don't promote (laughs) violence. Right. Oh, that is such a great serial, though, because, you know, the whole, you know, I mean, again, they have legitimate ethical arguments about, you know, what's right and wrong about this. You know, like, hey, they need help from these Thals. 
you know, so should we try to break their entire culture of pacifism just to help us? And then it's about, well, but it's home too, because the Daleks are homicidal rage machines themselves, (laughs) and so one day, they'll kill the Thals too, you know, and so they kind of, you know, have, you know, that whole discussion there. And then Ian, though, is the one who's really savage there. You know, take the woman and force Eladon to fight him to show that, see, there is some, you know, there are things that will cause you to get violent. It's just like, man. One of the things about that serial that I find interesting is the fact that it's rooted in kind of the the post-war mentality that, you know, Europe should have risen to the occasion and stopped Hitler, you know, before Hitler really got going, right? And if Mm -hmm. you think about, you know, Ian is about 40 in 1963, then he was probably in World War II, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I lament about the series is that, and particularly the modern series, is that it is no longer rooted in that context that some things need to be fought, not for some random, you know, Time Lord Victorious reason, but because, you know, some things are worth fighting for. And that's what I see in the original Doctor. You know, he doesn't fight monsters, right? And Nathan, we've talked about the problem of the word monster many times. You know, he fights evil people and or evil things when he's fighting right right when he stops being so self-obsessed he, he goes out into the universe and tries to you know promote good and and i i think that that's such a shame that that has gone from the series and instead it's a sort of well a very political series to me mm-hmm. a lot of hartnell's performance i think is informing mean, because even if you've only know his background from that adventure in space and time uh, which i do recommend watching if people are interested in sort of a story of how it all began they do take a lot of liberties they do condense a lot of what happened and change some details to more efficiently tell the story i think the only part that really kind of annoyed me was the sort of idea that Hartnell was forced out when, in fact, someone had tried to force him out and Hartnell had gone above his head and gotten him fired. But then Hart was the one who decided that because of his illness, he needed to go. So that whole sequence of him going to Sidney Newman and Newman saying, like, we've got great plans for Doctor Who just without you or whatever, however they put it, is a complete fiction and is, in my mind, the only part of that that isn't really even true to the spirit of what happened. The best takeaway from Space and Time for me was the creation of the Daleks. Because mm-hmm. you, I watched it and even watching it in Tenet's verse and, and Hartnell's when it first arrived, I'm like, it's a robot with a whisk and a plunger. <laughs> What's the fear? And, but seeing the creation, seeing the voice and modulation that they did with them, like, okay, okay, I'm done. You're, you're good. You're good. You're fear. You're fear incarnate. You just live with it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a truly alien design. That's the one thing they wanted. They wanted to make sure it didn't look like someone in a suit. Because every monster story in TV and film was, it was obviously a guy in a suit. And so by doing that, by giving them that weird look, it was, and giving them those weird voices, it was a way of being really disturbing. And the fact of the matter is, we can laugh at it now, but it really did cause terror. I mean, kids with nightmares, it was a, you know, it was one of these things in British culture where it's like children were terrified of the Daleks. Damn well they should be! Right! Exactly. <laughs> two years old, and I freak out when I see a cosplay! Right! So, yeah, no, I, I... It is one of the really cool stories about the beginning of Doctor Who, but what I was going to say, though, is that Hartnell himself was a man who really, really loved comedy. 
and get towards the end of his career and had been kind of typecast as these nasty drill sergeants uh, in a lot of the movies that he played. And and that's the thing. I mean, I think in Doctor Who, they originally might have written for that angry drill sergeant, or maybe he was just used to playing things that way. But as he sort of relaxes into the role, you see a lot more of that lightness and humor come out. I mean, the Space Museum is pretty crappy, uh, in my opinion. It is one of the worst tales <laughs> of his time. But his performance in it is wonderful. The whole thing where he's being interrogated and he's not taking the thing seriously at all. You know, he's just playing around with the guy. That's wonderful to watch. It's a lot of fun. You know, I mean, he, he has these comedic moments all the time. I mean, the Romans is another fantastic one of... The Gunfighters, to me, is yes. the, the finest example of comedy in the series. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. If you can just get past that ballad of the Last Chance Saloon. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I've been telling you for 20 years, that's fine music. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Hartnell, he's, you know, I mean, he's not... I just want to say that, you know, if you get to watch him, I always likened his character to, uh, uh, this is the Doctor, to Yoda. <laughs> Yoda is a very angry, you know, when he first appears, you know, and then he becomes, you know, this very sort of mellow, jokey kind of character, you know, and I really like that. And the doctor's like that, too. He's got all this knowledge. He's really smart. But yeah, sometimes he can be like angry and petty, but then he can also be like really fun and, you know, likable, too. I think on my recent rewatch of the Hartnell years, one of the things that I was kind of looking at was was Hartnell's performance. Mm-hmm. Just what he did and how he did it. And, and I'm, I'm no acting critic or anything, but I really found him to be astonishingly good. I mean, he plays everything just pitch perfect, Nathan. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Hartnell gets enough credit for the quality of acting that he put into that part. And a lot of it has been kind of ignored or, or taken to be him not acting you know he didn't remember his lines or he you know he he had a lot of mannerisms but all of that is part of this exquisite character that he put together and it's all just pitch perfect well and that's the thing you know uh, for people who don't know hartnell had uh, arteriosclerosis and um what it did is it did cause him to uh, not only have physical difficulties but also he did start forgetting his lines in the later years but i think to Eric's point, a lot of people think that every time when the doctor is sort of forgetful or whatever, that's another example of forgetting his lines. But in the beginning, that was an affectation for the character. You know, that was just creating realism of he's playing this old scientist type, so he sort of mispronounces things or is forgetful or of that nature. And it's not a mistake. It's part of the character. It was towards the end of his run when he started having real problems for getting lines and back in those days it was expensive to do retakes and so a lot of times if it was close enough or if one of the other actors covered for him they would just keep rolling because they didn't want to stop film again and then they'd have to do actual editing of actually cutting tape and splicing it together which was time consuming and expensive you know that's that's the story there but no i agree with you i think hartnell's great isn't there the legend too with his with his acting and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I only know it as an urban legend at this point, but where he he actually was so into the character and developing this entire mythology that, you know, one time someone says, oh, you, you flip this switch and you dematerialize. He's like, that's not how you do that. I've been doing this switch this entire time. 
this is how you operate this ship. I know I'm, I'm the doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, that professionalism really shines through when you, when you look at, at how consistent he was with the mannerisms, how consistent he was with the character. Even as he got on to, you know, season three and, and season four, where, you know, you could tell he was hurting a bit. It was hard for him to continue. The passion was still there. The desire, the want was still there to do this. Yeah, no, that is that is correct. He did actually, and even Carol Ann Ford says that she and he worked out which controls did it. So he says, Susan, open the doors. She would walk up to the same control every time and press that lever because they knew that children would pay attention to that kind of thing he said you know they're not they're not stupid you know i mean like if you know if you go to a different end of the console to do the control they'll they'll say and uh, that's even Sidney newman the guy who created the concept for doctor who said that he was pitching it at 12 to 14 year olds because they were the most discerning audience because unlike adults might not tell you what they think is like 12 to 14 year olds will tell you if you're doing a good job or doing a bad job. So, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. And that's, that's another thing I guess I should point out is that, you know, even though when people say that Doctor Who was designed as a children's program, what they're really talking about is like teens when they say children. It's not like it was a preschool show. Uh, which I think nowadays when we think of a show for children, we think of a younger set. But it was more of a uh, an teens kind of audience that they were going for, which I have to say, watching the show, they definitely give kids of that age a lot more credit, I think, in the British culture than they do in our culture. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's that's far more intelligent program than I think even in the '60s American children were getting. You don't think that I Dream of Genie was group? Uh... <laughs> 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 Garpile. But um, Gilligan's Island. But anyway. (laughs) But yeah, I wanted to. That's why I just wanted to bring up Hartnell a little bit. I I feel like his era gets skipped over uh, a lot because you'll see sort of a disconnect uh, with how he handles things, you know, versus later doctors. Well, well, if you put some Michael Bay explosions in there, we'll be popping. People, (laughs) kids will go all over it. So, but moving on from Hartnell, I I wanted to talk a bit about companions, and we don't have time to talk in depth about all of them, but why don't you each just sort of tell me who your favorite companion is from this time period? So, let's go Mike, uh, then Michael, then Eric, then me. I I do. I I still like Susan. She's a ball of wonder, and... (laughs) (laughs) So, I connect with her on many different levels because... I watched it and I see how Susan acted towards like everything. Mm-hmm. And then I had to take a step back. Me and my ex always got into it and how I treated life. I'm like, holy shit, I'm Susan. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really click with it until I actually like fully thought more about it. I'm like, I am the same space. It's me. It's me on screen. <laughs> and I'm pretty. <laughs> <laughs> you often sprain your ankle <laughs> and get I, rats? So I actually do have a broken ankle, a, a nice little titanium plate in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest the part of this. <laughs> That's not cosplay, by the way. That's real life. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, I learned something new about people every time I do a podcast, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I'll say this. I feel like Susan is given a bum rap by fandom. I think Carol Ann Ford did a lot with not 
much. I mean, Susan was definitely passed over a lot. But, you know, the the whole idea of that she was trying to do something of someone who's reacting to things in an alien way, you know, that doesn't react like we would expect someone to do so. And there is kind of, there is a consistency to how she acts, uh, in my mind, where it seems like she's much more terrified in less technologically advanced areas than in ones that are technologically advanced, which makes complete sense when you consider that she's from this super advanced civilization. So even though people say that Susan's very random and that, you know, she acts very strange, you know, you can contrast, like, her reactions in the Sensorites, where it's like, oh yeah, these guys are going to take me hostage, I'm not scared at all, to you know, something like when she's in France, blubbering it. You know, it kind of makes a little more sense if you frame it that way of she's terrified of these primitive, you know, uh, civilizations, but something that's technological, you know, advanced, it's more familiar, she's kind of accepting it. But I know my wife really likes Susan because of the whole idea of people were never taking her seriously, even when she had good ideas or were telling them things that were true or whatever. And my wife feels that, you know, sort of resonate from her childhood. So, you know, she was designed as the identification figure for the uh, young teens watching the show. So I think that that kind of works on that level as well. Did anyone else have any thoughts on Susan? No. Okay. (laughs) That says a lot right there. Well, I'm attached to her because she's his grandma, but she's not my favorite. Mm. I also think she's cute, but that's that's a whole other line of conversation. She is. (laughs) All right, Michael. Yeah, that those are going to be my my continuing thoughts on Susan is one of my favorites from this era. A lot of what we've already talked about with her. But, you know, with her her curiosity and her her desire to to understand the universe around her, but really it was also the relationship with the Doctor and, and Susan that kind of really sold me on her. There wasn't really that relationship that I could see with any other other companion. You know, he was he was playing the grandfather role of trying to protect her from what was going on out there, but also really grudgingly realizing that that she was trying to grow and she were to grow into as a person and. You know, when when she said goodbye in in the Dalek invasion of Earth, I was in a, a really good, like really good pace on going through those those series. It's like, ah, oh, Reign of Terror, Planet of Giants, Dalek invasion of Earth, and then she leaves, and I I could not press play on the rescue. I could not mm. move on. Oh. I had to wait a couple of days because it was just like, wow, they just tore apart this family. You know, they let her their dynamic that's missing now. And I had to kind of reconcile that and move on again. I, I was very pleased with it with Susan. I, I've also been, you know, kind of happy to see that they've, at least as far as the timestamps project goes, I, I understand she back in the future, but with the new who stuff, you know, they keep referencing her and stuff. And it's good to see that they're, they're keeping that thread kind of going. And I would, I would really like to see her again because, you know, there was the promise that when I come back, <laughs> but I haven't seen her yet. Eric. Yeah. Well, I just to, to the uh, departure of Susan, I was really, uh, I really enjoyed seeing the build-up to her departure. I thought that was actually pretty well handled. If you're looking at character development, you know, we tend to look at her departure as kind of a sudden thing that happens at the end of Dalek Invasion uh, that's sort of, kind of, sort of set up in the Sensorite. Mm-hmm. But really, there's a, a general progression through all of those series, right from an unearthly child to the moment that she leaves. It makes a lot of sense when she goes, and... Uh, it's, I think, satisfying for when she leaves the ship. I, I don't. I, you're, you're really putting me to the test here to pick a favorite companion from this era, because I, I really love them all, even Susan. 
I, I think Barbara has to win the, the, the because I think she's such a well drawn character, and I, and I really can't see her and Ian as anything other than a pair. So we'll throw him in there too. But, <laughs> but he's more of a kind of boy's own, you know, that that sort of heroic. Whereas she is a real character who has feelings and experiences that shape her and has a real impact on the plot of the first, particularly that first series. Mm-hmm. But you know this this is crazy difficult for me to pick because I love Steven. He was kind of my first companion. Mm-hmm. You know I love Dodo. Yes, <laughs> another maligned companion by fandom. I love Dodo if nothing else than for her performance in uh, or for her role in uh, the Gunfighters, which I think is just she's so unbelievably cute in that. <laughs> and I love Ben and Polly. So. Uh, uh, who who were companions that were horribly squandered, I think, uh, in the second Doctor era. But I think if you're going to go for a, you know, the best character of that first, the toss-up would be between Barbara and Stephen, and I think Barbara really wins the, the the title. Yeah, I mean, I cannot sing Barbara's praises more. She's just uh, a really really interesting. I mean, the whole idea of the Aztecs, which in any other science fiction or even in any later Doctor Who, what she's doing would be the villain's plan. I'm going to masquerade as a god to completely continue to change her. You know, <laughs> it's like, but you believe it because of what she's trying to do, what she thinks she can do. She thinks she can save the Aztec civilization by doing this. And so you see the sort of like, false path that she's going down because she thinks that she can you know, do something and the arguments with the doctor in that one are fantastic where the doctor is basically telling her no you know you can't do this you know it's completely and utterly abhorrent what you are trying to do but you know it works because you know what kind of a character she is and you understand what she is trying to do and so yeah i i love that i love her relationship with ian it's funny because on some of the Doctor Who forums, I have gotten into something of a, I wouldn't even call it an argument, but something of a debate of... A trife. Yeah. <laughs> of whether or not Ian and Barbara are romantically interested in each other. Because me, I, I cannot see them as anything other but a romantic pair. Now... To be fair, my opinion is heavily influenced by the novelizations that David Whitaker wrote. He was the script editor for the first season of Doctor Who, and he novelized some of those stories. And it's very clear to Whitaker's mind that they are a couple. And I think that comes off in the series itself, which makes sense because he was script editing it. There are other people who watch the show and say that they don't see it, that they're just friends. What um, but I love that relationship, and I think that over time it does get closer to where they're frolicking at the end in the chase. You know, when they finally get home and they do like a whole montage. That's really it's really sweet because you actually get this whole sequence of them just having a being back at home that you don't normally get when a companion leaves. You know, you get like the look back at the TARDIS as it fades away, and that's it. You know, cut. You know, it's even more satisfying when you when you find that. Uh, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill were were friends for years afterwards, mm-hmm. and and so they you know th- their relationship really did go on past the series. You know, it's really they're such a sweet couple. They should have gotten married. Were you saying that Jacqueline Hill and William Russell should have gotten married? Yeah, <laughs> that too, but okay. You know. <laughs> no, she was married, you know. Yeah, no, I I love that, uh, and I love seeing them together. 
since you took Barbara, which was going to be my answer, though, I think that I will go with Steven. You can't have Barbara, Nathan. Who <laughs> 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 is Dodo? Well, you can't have Polly either. Well, see, I thought you were going to pick Dodo, because I know how much you love Dodo. Well, I do love Dodo, but you're stuck with Vicky, it sounds like. So. No, I'm going to go with Steven. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this about Vicky. I know in most people's minds, she is the preferred companion as the young girl companion between her and Susan and Dodo. She never really worked for me. In fact, or at least partially, that Maureen O'Brien looks older to me than Carol Ann Ford, even though ironically, Maureen O'Brien was actually younger than Carol Ann Ford. But seeing Vicky act the way that she does, it seems to me that she acts far more childish than someone that, and they never establish what her age is. There's never a line that says she's this age or that age. Now, since then, uh, you know, reading some behind the scenes books on Doctor Who, I've since found that, you know, the story uh, that was come up with behind the scenes is that Vicky is like 14 years old. And knowing that, okay, maybe some of her reactions make a little more sense, but it always seemed to that Vicky was this kind of crazy, very childish character that I didn't really understand because she looks 19. And so I, I just don't care for her. I, I much prefer Susan. But Stephen, I, I actually like Stephen quite a bit. He, you know, and the show completely changes once Ian and Barbara leave. Uh, I think that that's something that we really need to out because there were behind-the-scenes changes going on at the same time, but you also lose the two characters who were really the focus for those first two seasons. And the Doctor really centrally becomes the star singular at that point instead of part of an ensemble. Because Stephen and Vicky, who are his companions at that point, are very clearly sidekicks. Very. Yeah, they're, and, and from that point onward, that's what it is. The companions are the sidekick. They are not co-stars at the same level of Doctor. <laughs> and Stephen, though, as just this sort of man of action, you know, uh, sort of good-natured guy, you know, I, I really like him. And he gets, first of all, he has this nice brotherly relationship with Vicky that I really appreciate. And I kind of like the way that the two of them play off each other. But then he also gets some of the media stuff in the Hartnell era with going through the Daleks' master plan and massacre, which we already kind of touched on all that, but he gets some real loss that he has to deal with, and it gets him even to the point where he's ready to leave the TARDIS. And, you know, I like all of that development that they give to his character. Um, I feel like he's also experienced something of a renaissance with Big Finish, which I don't really want to talk too much about extra canonical material here, but most of the audio dramas that Peter Purvis has participated in, I feel like it's the best that they've done with the early Doctors at Big Finish. So I really enjoy Steven's perspective on things, and I feel like he's continuing to get more drama than just about any of the other older companions. So I like that. I think that Purvis really handled it well being a fairly young actor going into this. So I guess I'll go with Steven on this one. We already established that Ian and Barbara are a pair, so basically Eric picked both of them. So... <laughs> <laughs> You can't have one without the other. I mean, that is the one thing where, you know, even though I wanted Ian to show back up in the uh, new series, I felt like that was kind of a deserved thing. But at the same time, it was kind of like, but then you would have to have Ian without Barbara. And that would be really sad. So, you know, I'm not sure it was necessarily all that bad of a thing. So anyone else thoughts then? 
I'm glad he's he's evolved a bit more. I remember uh, from my watch through that I just I really couldn't stand Steven. He, he's actually one of my least favorite from this era. It just uh, he came across uh, as the other companions were, you know, more more of the like we said, kind of family in a sense. Mm-hmm. Steven always seemed to be like this kind of rude and gruff and my way or the highway kind of guy. And I was just like, okay, you want to leave? There's the door, man. <laughs> <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm I'm glad the big finish stuff has actually kind of fleshed him out a bit more, and it might actually drive me to to seeking some of those out because I there was some potential there. I just never quite clicked with him. No, Mike, it's on Steven? None. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think Peter Purvis's performance in the Gunfighters is just, oh. <laughs> everything associated with the Gunfighters is just perfect for you, Eric. It is. It, I mean, it is one of the best serials in the entire series, and uh, and which is ironic, of course, because it was always considered one of the worst by the uh, the fan glitterati there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that even that gives a bad performance. It's such a great serial, and and uh, I love everything about Steven in that story. You know, from uh, let's hope the piano knows it to <laughs> tripping over uh, tripping over his his uh, oh gosh. Um, Spurs and and dressing up like Tom Mix, it's just a just a wonderful wonderful story. Yeah, for for people who haven't seen it, um, the gunfighter Stephen basically does what Marty Fly does in Back to the Future Three, where you know dresses up as a cowboy in very much the sense of you know like what what you would think of a cowboy in modern times or what like a stage cowboy looks like and the reactions from people actually living in that era are like ridiculous you know <laughs> so, so there's a you know a good bit of humor from that i thought that the beauty of the gunfighters was the fact that it felt like a parody of the the western film culture you know like mm-hmm. the that era of, of film, 60s and 70s, was really when a lot of the Westerns were pretty hot still. And the gunfighters felt a lot like it was taking that and just playing all of it to the to the extreme, turning up to 11 and just having a, a fun satire with it. Yeah, I mean, Donald Cotton, who wrote that one and The Myth Makers, I mean, and Myth Makers obviously is a parody of the, you know, mythological, you know, adaptations and all of that, and, and on, I guess the original, you know, Greek stories themselves too, but... You know, yeah, he definitely liked doing those parodies that just, you know, pointing out all the silly things about the the kinds of stories that he was writing. But they're also both very, very dark stories, too. You know, they mm-hmm. they have this veneer of humor about them, and then they, they really, uh, they get really dark in the second half of both of them. Yeah, to Temple's to point about the parodying, the, the gunfighters parodying Westerns, I think one of the, the interesting things about that story that no one ever talks about is that Wyatt Earp is played by John Alderson, who had been a kind of a, a second or third billing westerns, Hollywood westerns star, and actually had been in an American television in the 50s. And so, you know, people watching that would have seen him and would have made that connection, right? That it was sort of an attempt to parody that kind of genre and uh, no one ever talks about it because people have forgotten about who john alderson was but he's quite a quite a you know high profile star really one of the more high profile or higher profile stars of the 60s i would say yeah. one thing that i want to bring up um i know we're getting a little long here there are two two more things that i want to talk about the first one is that we, we kind of talked about these myth makers and the gunfighters and how they're sort of more comedic stories. There are 
really three main, I don't want to say sub-eras, but whatever the best term is, within the Hartnell era. And even then, within the first era, there's kind of a break there too, where at the end of the first production run, I, it, it, okay, but basically where the seasons end isn't necessarily when they actually ended filming, so there's a difference between production run and seasons. But at the end of the first production run, David Whitaker left as script editor and Dennis Spooner took her. And so basically what that means is that at the end of the Daleks' invasion of Earth was where David Whitaker left, and Dennis Spooner came in with the rescue. And they had two very different approaches or proclivities to the kinds of stories they wanted told in Doctor Who. David Whitaker, I always say, was sort of Robert Holmes before there was Robert Holmes. He was a very dramatic, he was very interested in the drama characters, very much interested in the development of the interactions and things like that. Dennis Spooner came from a comedy background, and you know, that's when you get things like the Romans and you get the sort of comedic parts of the Space and Chase and uh, even the Time Meddler. All those sorts of serials are more either Dennis Spooner wrote them or he was injecting his, the sort of comedy that he enjoyed into them. And then you get a big tonal shift after he leaves, because Verity Lambert, the original producer, leaves also. And you get John Wiles, who, and uh, Donald Tosh was his script editor. And they were very interested in telling dark stories, uh, in elevating Doctor Who above that sort of 12 to 14 year audience, and very interested in telling controversial stories from history, which is where you get things like the massacre, and even their sort of dark take on the Trojan War. They were interested in discussions of religion, which is again, the massacre. And, you know, you get things like the Doc's Master Plan, which is a far more violent kind of story than had ever been done before. Now, he wanted to get rid of Hartnell, and Hartnell, like I said, went above his head and had him fired, and so then you get Innes Lloyd in as the new script editor, or the new producer, and Jerry Davis as the uh, script editor. And they were more interested, well, number one, in keeping Hartnell happy because the powers that be felt that without Hartnell they couldn't continue doing Doctor Who. And two, were interested in telling things that were more like light adventure stories. And Jerry Davis specifically was interested in technology and science, which is where you get things like the War Machines and the Tenth Planet. Now, I know, Eric, it was probably too hard to roll back your mind to that period, but you can answer this one too. So my question to the three of you, though, is, does that to you when you watched it? Like, did you feel like there were big tonal shifts in the show? Or did it feel like it was kind of, you know, all, you know, seamless? Well, I didn't recognize it at, at the time, you know, the first time around, but, um, mm -hmm. or even the second time around, probably. But uh, having, you know, having had many years to think about it and rewatched it, uh, I found season two to be um, pretty, of the, of the three of them, boring. I don't dislike Spooner's era. Um, and there are many, there, I mean, they're all great stories, and I love The Time Meddler. It's one of my favorites. But I think that they shift towards that kind of an attempt to do adventure serials more than character dramas. Mm -hmm. And so I think that season one and three are really superior, and, and they really are better drama and better, just better constructed stuff, rather than the kind of, I don't know, populist, what's, what's the next dice? going to be uh, which I think is what you get in season two yeah. well you know michael might fight you with uh, the web planet because that's one of his favorites oh god 
<laughs> I remember reading your review for that on timestamps and just laughing the whole time. Oh, the web planet and the celestial toy maker. My bane's of existence <laughs> in this era. <laughs> oh, I tell you. No, um, I I don't know that I really recognize a tonal shift necessarily. I'm, it's it's been yeah, two or three years, so I'm I'm trying to think back here. Um, look at the numbers. Season two was my more highly rated one out of the four. Uh, season three was the lowest rated one. I mean, they're all still above three, so they're still good. But yeah, I I, I found season two would be to be more enjoyable for whatever reason, and season three to be worse, mm-hmm. or I guess just just more average. <laughs> <laughs> so I. And I don't know what that actually says because I'm not as familiar with the behind the scenes type of type of thing. Uh, it took me a little bit of researching to figure that out just recently for for some of the fourth Doctor stuff. No, I mean it's interesting because I'm just I'm just curious how much it affected people who were viewing it too. Which you know, viewing it cold uh, like you do without having a lot of background material, you're viewing it kind of as people were at the time, except truncated. You know, you get to watch it week over week, where it might take them six weeks to watch the, the same thing. So I was just curious how that came off to you. And what about you, Mike? I didn't notice it. It, it was so dry. It was <laughs> nails on a chalkboard trying to get through. And, and I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the journey. I And and all my friends who are now getting into Doctor Who, I'm like, yeah, man, you got to start at the beginning. Way beginning. And they're like, oh, man, that, that sounds like a lot of work. It is. But if you want to be a fan, you need to do it. Oh! Just, just shove it in their face a little bit. But he's gatekeeper. a Star Wars fan, and he shoves it in my fan in my face. So it's like back and forth now. <laughs> but it was really just dry for me. And and this was also the first time because I like episodes like the Unearthly Child. It was four episodes. I'm mm-hmm. like, it it's four. It's four fifty minute. Ep- what? Who did this? This was this a thing? Well, twenty five minutes. My episode. mind. Yeah, 45 minutes, but 25. it just blew my mind that I, have to, that I had to sit through for one story in four basically hour-long parts. It's just like, how am I going to do this? Let's just hit play and let's go. And so, and of course, as I came into the new season, it's like, yeah, we have an episode. Here's your story. Move along. I'm like, nope, You here's four 45-minute episodes and your story. Then move along. And then they, they kind of brought it back in with uh, Capaldi... And, and Matt Smith's era a little bit. So I was, and after watching all these seasons, uh, Doctor Who episodes in that format, seeing it come back into the new series, I enjoyed it more. So it it, it made me like what they uh, like those longer two part episodes a lot because I went through all this. But when it comes to the tonal shift, I really didn't notice anything. I think I, I noticed the difference of the Doctor when it definitely came to the Daleks. And that's really why I actually started it, because I'm like, I want to know the history of the Daleks. Just show me the history. And I actually, Web Planet was one of my favorites. No joke. <laughs> <laughs> I actually defend the Web Planet myself. I don't think it was the best Doctor Who, but I don't think it was the worst. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it, it was a total shift for how, because I, I started this journey because I wanted to know the history of the Daleks and the Doctor. And every time the Doctor, uh, the Doctor and the Daleks had those episodes, you see the dynamic where if it was a non-Dalek episode, yeah, he's angry grandpa, he's learning, he's adjusting. But when it came to the Daleks, it's like he's either on one spectrum or the other, never in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that was really enlightening for me. Well, yeah, certainly as the Daleks are the furning villain of the show, you definitely see that when the Doctor encounters the Daleks. It's like, oh, I already know that something's bad here and we're going to fight these guys, you know, and he becomes far more... <laughs> 
proactive about Daleks than he is about a lot of other situations in this era where a lot of times he wants to take that sort of, we can get back to the TARDIS, I really don't care, you know, kind of (laughs) mentality, you know. Which is why a lot of, I mean, that is a trope that comes up a lot, especially in the early stories, is the reason the Doctor has to get involved is because something happens to the Tars, and so he can't just leave, you know, things as they are. He has to get involved, but he becomes, as the series, as the they progress, he becomes far more of a character who is interested in righting the wrongs and fighting evils that he sees, even, you know, within just the, the Hartnell series. But the other thing that I wanted was for everybody to mention their favorite story for this era. I'm going to start with the honorable mention on this one. As we had talked before about the Aztecs, I had originally seen it just in padding. It was on Netflix for a while, and I really was just unimpressed when I first saw it. And then when I came back and started watching for timestamps, and I had all the backstory, I had all the character development... It jumped from a two or a three on my on my scale to a solid five. It was phenomenal. It just clicked. It was magic. But to me, the Dalek invasion of Earth is just so good. I enjoy that one immensely, just because it it really helps to develop the Daleks, which are like we've been talking about a, a mainstay in this franchise. You get the companions really getting in it and, and helping to fight. I mean, and Susan, and Barbara. In an era of science fiction and an era of television when women aren't empowered usually, and you've got two women who are just are just in the in the mix fighting th- you know the the bad guys and making things happen, that was phenomenal. Yeah, you know, we had talked about before with with the departure of Susan, it was you know very emotionally wrenching, which had been one of the first times that it really had had grabbed me with this franchise. You know, going through the first the first Doctor's Tales, just. All of it seemed to really click. I mean, even down to the secondary characters with the wheel, wheelchair, uh, wheelchair-bound scientist, who you know, his his choice is to just sacrifice himself with his grenade to to, to destroy the Daleks, and then it didn't work. It was like, oh, this is serious. Like this is this is real. You know, <laughs> I I really love the Dalek invasion of Earth. Oh, and and I kind of I kind of wanted to mention too that it made watching the uh, the Peter Cushing movies a little more difficult because <laughs> <laughs> when they do Daleks Invasion Earth twenty one fifty AD and you're like this this isn't right <laughs> <laughs> yeah the um I mean talking about secondary characters I also really like I can't remember his name I'm sure Eric will remember Bernard K uh, his character in that Eric oh I was prepared to tell you the characters of uh, the actor's name. It's, um, I don't know. Okay, yeah, never there. mind. It's not important. But anyway, um, he's an actor who shows up in a lot of the first three Doctors serials. And, you know, uh, having, you know, being able to watch the series now and watch it through as many times as I can, I've always picked him out. He also played Salad in The Crusade, which he's just an actor that always puts in a great performance. He's the one that's part of the Resistance that sort of goes on his own a lot. And I wish I could remember the name of the character, but. Yeah, it doesn't to me either, Nathan. But he, they, he plays it slightly sinister, where in a few scenes you think he's going to turn on them or something. And he does some really interesting things where it's like he will just be leaning against a wall or something like that because the actor was thinking, well, this is a guy who's thinking, I could be running at any moment, so I'm going to conserve energy like any time, you know, any time that I can and stuff like that. And it's just kind of cool he's a very great character actor i love him every time that i see him sorry tyler tyler thank you and so anyway yeah i i think that the guest cast on that one was great as well 
So does anyone else have, I, I should have said before, if anyone else wants to jump in when people are mentioning their favorites and just say a few things about it, just do that. So, because this, we're, we're only going to be able to talk about the ones we list as the favorites. So Mike or Eric, do you have anything to say about Daleks yeah, Invasion? I think uh, the, uh, the work in that is, is just superb. Mm. The uh, iconic run across the uh, Westminster Bridge or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, Barbara and uh, Jenny are running with Dortmund with his, uh, with his uh, wheelchair. And, and it's very uh, intense stuff. Very uh, kind of coded to be like the Nazis invading London or something. It's really powerful stuff. Well, they do put a little too fine enough with the Daleks giving the Sieg Heil salute. Uh, as they're <laughs> running around, which is like, okay, we get the Daleks are Nazis thing. You don't have to put that, you know, put that on it. You know, uh, something else about that, too, is the score. Francis Chagrin, uh, that really very spare score for that. And it is used to its greatest effect during those sequences when they're when they're running through London. It's very uh, percussion-y and just very stark. Right. Yeah, I mean, it makes you feel like these are people who are in a run for their lives kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think the best thing about that, though, is that like it really hit home to people watching it because of all the familiar landmarks that... And because they filmed during the, the very earliest hours of morning when there were no people, you know, they were able to film these landmarks with no people, so it really felt like the aliens have invaded, you know, and wiped everybody out, and, you know, you could run around London with no people, and, you know, it's kind of a spooky people to think about we kind of get sort of jaded nowadays because there's been so much science fiction posing those kinds of questions that we don't think about how this was to somebody in the 60s where it would have been like this is like a really scary and surprising you know sort of thing to think about but uh my thing about the dogs invasion of earth yeah it's it's one of my favorites it's not the favorite but it is one of my favorites and it really nailed my coffin my fear of the dogs okay this is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well there is something about them being on earth that is you know a little more terrifying than you know fighting them on their own planet oh yeah so uh mike what is your favorite my favorite is the romans mm. and it, i know it's and even when because i had to rewatch it today and like watching like wow how is this my favorite and then nero that's why <laughs> that's why <laughs> And I'm, and I'm a huge Greek and Roman mythology buff, so when I get to see one of my favorite emperors and, and something I'm really loving on screen, it's like you, it, has a, it has a good place in my heart. And the fact that the Doctor, and like we were talking about earlier, like the Doctor really doesn't get involved unless something's going on. I'm like, no, the Doctor's now bored, and he just wants to go off and have an adventure. He just, he just leaves the TARDIS like, I'm bored, I'm out. Just gonna see what happens, and, <laughs> and he has to fake being a liar, uh, a liar player. No, a liar player. <laughs> liar, he's like, liar, cause, yeah. cause that's one of the best double entendres ever. Is when he's like, I am quite good at playing the liar. <laughs> <laughs> the word play in that one is great. I like uh, close your eyes, and Nero will give you a big surprise. <laughs> 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 or when. Uh, the doctor is talking to Nero, thinking of throwing him in the uh, the uh, the Colosseum to watch lions tear him apart. He's like, uh, <laughs> and the doctor shows up, and he's like, "I might be a roaring success, you know. Who knows if I go to hell, you know? <laughs> I might get, you know, <laughs> so, you know." And it's just all these you know things showing that he knows, you know, what's going on. Nero's like, "You get it. You're plenty of sh- you're you're plenty as hell." Right, yeah. <laughs> well, the whole idea that Nero comes up with the idea to burn. Rome because the doctor accidentally burned his the magnifying glass. Right? 
I remember that, my book! <laughs> now let me ask you a question, because this serial has become controversial in our modern era. And that is because of the way that Nero treats Barbara, and how he chases her around. How did you feel watching that? Well, as someone who is not well with the lady... <laughs> for... For, for reasons <laughs> well, I, that my law can't say. <laughs> uh, I hope you're not chasing them around bedrooms and trying to <laughs> jump on top of them. No, not okay. 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 But it was, it, it really shows, and whether it was either acting or the, the time that the show was going on, that, I mean, it that was the generation. That was that time period. Love, love was love, I guess. Maybe close to it, I guess. Watching it, I definitely learned like, oh well, this is not what I do to women. This, this, not that they don't like this. And, and I had to go to my ex girlfriend, and I'm like, Jasmine, is this, is that, is that what you want? Me chasing around the bedroom? She's like, No, you don't have the cardio. And I'm like, Ouch. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I can prove her. I can run a mile. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing, I mean, here's the thing, and I agree with you. You know, in the time period, there were a lot of comedies about men chasing women around, you know, even women they didn't, that they didn't know very well and doing that kind of thing. It's, it's definitely more problematic now because there is, it, it gets a more sinister aspect when you consider all the things, you know, around it that, you know, what it really means and whatnot. But I don't think people watching it at the time were thinking, oh, yeah, Nero's going to get her, he's going to, you know. Do this and that, you know. <laughs> I don't that's what it was really there for. But yeah, it is. It, it does make me a little uncomfortable watching it now, but that's only because of just living that we live in and knowing what I know. You're just basically saying you're mo you're more woke. Right. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, and the way I look at it, it's like, well, it's either Nero's gonna be chasing Barbara, or how would people feel if he was chasing Ian? <laughs> it was from <laughs> Not, you know, even in that era, that wasn't uh, outside of the bounds of comedy uh, either, so, <laughs> yes. It's basically Penny Hill, though, isn't right. it? I mean, you know, it's it's just farce, so I people are way too sensitive. They're not sensitive, they're politically correct. Mm. Yeah, I just thought it was something uh, interesting. But the serial as a whole is, you know, so funny. You know, and, and Dennis Spooner, <laughs> I mean, it really does show G- Spooner's genius for comedy, because... All the stuff, and even the fight scene with the guy who's sent to assassinate him, and the doctor, like, <laughs> saying to Vicky, like, oh, I'm so, you know, so used to outwitting my opponents mentally that I forget the joys of the gentle art of fisticuffs. You know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Hartnell was this fighter, it's just so funny. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I definitely love the Romans uh, quite a bit. Does anybody else have anything to say about the Romans? I think with a lot of talked about being, you know, kind of problematic now that wasn't problematic then, it's, you kind of have to look at it in, in, with two sets of eyes, mm-hmm. you know, like Doctor Who is very strong with using a lot of yellow face in, in their yeah. actors, you know, they, they dress them up as Asians and they do makeup. We've seen a lot of that in, in the Hartnell era and the, the, uh, you know, the following eras too. And I, you just going to look at it and you say, okay, that's unfortunate, but the story still exists. They've looked at it differently. Let's look at sets of eyes and say, we wouldn't do that now, but let's put it in context and say, okay, how does the story compare you know, with everything else? I think a lot of people who do get, uh, get upset about it kind of forget that you know, it's, it's, it's okay to be upset about it, but we also want to have that kind of, you know, it was acceptable then, mm-hmm. kind of move past it, see what the story has to, has to bear, you know? No, I completely agree with that. 
I would say more about it, but since I'm not sure what Eric's going to say for its story, I'm going to hold that my secondary comment in reserve. But Eric, uh, do you have any comments <laughs> on the Romans first, and then uh, you can just jump into whatever your favorite is? I just think it's a beautifully constructed story because of the way that the two halves never meet each other, but they influence right. each other. It's so great. To the point where there's a couple, what, uh, nearly running into each other down the hallways, mm-hmm. and it's really well-built story. Gosh, I, you, yet again, you put me to the test, uh, the final test, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, is there an invisible barrier around my backside? <laughs> I, it's hard to pick a favorite. If I had to take one heart to a desert island with me, I think it would have to be the gunfighters. I just, I love it to death. It's probably the story that made me a fan. And it's, it's funny and really sums up everything I love about historicals and the series, or at least one part of the series. If, if I could take another one with me, it would probably be the one which I dearly love because it plugs into my love for 1960s British culture and the Avengers and, and all that stuff. And maybe Marco Polo, if you let me take the third one. He's <laughs> just like, I'm just going to take all of them. Yeah, I mean, if I could take the whole series, I'll take that. But... Well, I will say, War Machines, I, I like watching War Machines uh, a lot more than Austin Powers, because I just imagine those existing within the same universe. But... <laughs> Yeah, gunfighters, you know, I really love the relate. you know, we talked about some of the funny things and whatnot, but I really love Dodo's relationship with Doc Holliday in yeah. that story, and I think that that's really cute and sweet and endearing, and I do feel like Dodo is a somewhat maligned character, but she's just this sort of fun modern girl, you know, is what she was supposed to be, and, you know, she doesn't have any of the really out there kind of stuff that either Susan or Vicky had, but, you know, I feel like you know, she was supposed to be, you know, sort of a person, which is what she played, and, you know, I, I like her in that story quite a bit, so, no, I, it's a, it's a good choice, even though fandom says that it's one of the worst stories of all time. Hey, Nathan, take Masterplan with me, too. <laughs> Surprised you didn't take the massacre. And, and the time lab. I, I just can't laugh him. <laughs> just put them all in the bucket, yes, just put them all there. Oh, man. So, uh, did you have anything you wanted to say about gunfighters? Uh, I think we covered the gunfighters pretty well earlier. (laughs) Mike? Pew, pew. Okay. (laughs) Um, for me, it's hard. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch that I'd like to take. You know, Marco Polo that Eric mentioned would be one. The, uh, Mythmakers would be another. We kind of talked about the Mythmakers a lot, though, so I'm going to kind of skip that one over. It's almost a toss-up between the Crusade and the Massacre, which is kind of ironic because in the time, if you read the reviews, uh, people seem to prefer the sci-fi stories to the historicals. The historicals have aged so much better, and that's because Mm. being able to draw upon the BBC resources that they had, historicals, I feel like, had higher production values. Of course, they were using costumes in many cases that already existed, so they didn't have to pay for that. And they do sets and props that already existed and things like that. But then, of course, the fact that they're historical means that the fact that we're getting further along the line doesn't really change anything because it was a historical then, too. So uh, it doesn't have the same dated look. But I'm going to go with the Crusade just because it helps me tee up on something that Michael uh, was saying about the Romans and about of the time period. You know, the Crusade surprises me in this day and age because the blackface aside, which there is, you know, uh, some... <laughs> 
it, it, it is a very what's the right word it is uh you would expect a british production about the crusades to be in the favor of the english but richard the lionheart comes off as a petulant child in that story and saladin comes off as this very competent ruler who is very concerned about doing right by his people and you know is is very logical and methodical about how he deals with things I absolutely love the character of Saladin. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Richard the Lionheart as he's portrayed in that story. And he <laughs> impresses me because not only is this a really good drama, but even of that time period where you would think that that would be, you know, people would be more backwards in their viewpoint of this, you know, uh, historically. It's a very even-handed look at what was actually going on. And the scene between Gene Marsh and Julian Glover, uh, which if people don't know who those are, Gene Marsh is Bad, Bad Morda from Willow, and Julian Glover is the bad guy from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But, you know, they have this scene where he's arguing with her that she needs to marry Saladin's brother to bring peace and she's like, you cannot just marry me off like that, and, you know, I'm going to go over your head to the Pope. And it is this huge, you know, very dramatic, tense scene, and they're both giving it their all, and it is wonderful to watch. I mean, two really great actors just, like, at the top of their game. And it happened, by the way, that um, Richard did try to create peace by doing that. And uh, I just love that story. And uh, it's another one where, even though it's not a comedic one, you know, Hartnell gets to comedy with bamboozling some of the people in the court and whatnot and trying to get the clothes for them of the period and bamboozling the shop owner and stuff like that. And Ian gets to rescue Barbara, which, you know, what's better than that? Because, you know, those two are a couple. I don't care what people say. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's great. And, and the villain, Elek here, is really bad, nasty guy, you know. So it's, I don't know. It's, I, I think it's really good. Any other thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that episode four lets it down just a little bit, but I agree with you. It is, it is a wonderful production. I, uh, I had a friend that I introduced to Doctor Who when I was in South Carolina who uh, fell in love with The Wheel of Fortune, the third episode, and he was uh, in, in training to be a minister and uh, was really fascinated by the conflict that was going on in that, and uh, he was a European history guy, too, and, and um, he used to repeat that scene of Joanna confronting Richard just constantly watch it over and over and over again and it she's quite explosive in that scene so it's a it's funny that you brought that up I think it is one of the great scenes of the series and you know I mean those two went on to be you know Hollywood movie stars definitely shows the the quality of the acting that they were getting in the series at that point Michael any thoughts on the crusade uh, I think he covered a lot of it. I just, it was really good to see Julian. I, I hadn't really seen anything of his outside of, you know, three of his, his really good performances. I love the franchises that they belong to. He was General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. He was, like he said, Walter Donovan in Last Crusade. I think it's uh, Aristotle Christophe for your eyes only. I mean, that's, that's Star Wars, that's Indy, and that's James Bond. I, how much better does it get? <laughs> <laughs> the acting pedigree is very strong here. Yeah, it was fun to see something of his that was earlier than those three. You know, it was, it was good to see him kind of expand and, and roll with it. My, my great disappointment from the year I was able to go to Dragon Con, because Julian Glover was there that year, was that by the time I got through to going to his table, he had already left. Oh. And Yeah, because I, 
I desperately wanted him to sign my DVD of The Crusade, and he was gone, so I was hoping to talk with him a little bit about Doctor Who, because I'm sure everyone else goes to see him about the roles that you just mentioned, and I thought it would be kind of neat for me to come and be like, I want to talk to you about Doctor Who. (laughs) And he has done interviews and things talking about Doctor Who, so I mean, he's still... He's still grateful for the series, and of course he shows up in Tom Baker's era later too, but he made, uh, apparently he's a lifelong friend of Brian ever since the Crusade, so uh, that started there. Just imagine if in the Crusade he had ripped off his face, and then he really ate green spaghetti. <laughs> well, we don't know who the other, you know, uh, Asmoth were, so maybe uh, King Richard was one of the other parts of him. <laughs> Mike, any thoughts on the Crusade? Sir Ian of Jaffa. Yes! <laughs> that is all. All right. <laughs> I mean, how cool would that be? You know, and it's sad because Ian, when, you know, if he goes back, you know, when he goes back home, it's like he he's actually a knight, you know, and that's legally binding and everything. I can't tell anyone because they wouldn't believe him. It's Unless like they look him a book. I'm sorry, what, Eric? It's like he left Narnia. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, the sad thing is, I would love to talk about, uh, well, there's, there's so many other good serials to talk about, and we could only lightly touch on them, as it is, the episode is going longer uh, than I expected it to, but, you know, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of really good thing in the Hartnell era, there's a lot of really good stories. The thing that I always say to people who are coming into it is, don't think of it as a TV show, think of it as you're watching a stage production. And I feel like that might help people to get more into the mindset. British television grew from just that. They were pointing cameras at plays that were performed on stage. And so, whereas American TV grew from sort of trying to imitate Hollywood, you know, British TV did sort of come from that theater background and sort of expanded from there. So if you think of it as a play, if you think of it in that context, I think that would help a lot of people to get into it more because if you're used to watching things in theater and being able to handle the pacing and and you know the fact that scenes are somewhat static and things like that, you should be able to handle the older Doctor Who so that have some of those same limitations. But uh, as we're sort of wrapping out here, any advice for people before? First of all, would you recommend people watch the first Doctor's era? And second, any advice to people on how to approach it if you're coming from the modern series context? So, uh, Michael, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I I would say it's definitely worth it's It's good to see kind of where the roots of this this franchise come from. It's good to see, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about with Hartnell's evolution in the character, a lot of the, the strong characters we talked about, strong performances, strong stories. Like you said, you kind of trade away, you realize that, you know, even even between American and British television in the 1960s, you know, the, the British didn't take a lot of shortcuts. They mm. they made sure that, you know, you got from point A to point B to point C, you know, where even the the, the 60s American stuff would take some narrative shortcuts and even now in in the current you know series of doctor who it's just implied that the doctor gets from place to place to place and you just follow along with the story but they lay it out for you like a stage play like you said and you know the whole story is before you and it's just it's easy to sometimes just close your eyes and forget about the visuals and just kind of soak in the story as an audio drama or as a play that way and just just imagine it in your head if it if it helps to 
yeah, you know, you're you're kind of getting tired maybe of watching all the the stuff in in between that normally is skipped over in modern production. Just close your eyes and kind of dream it as it's going on and and go with it that way. Eric? Yeah, of course, you know I'm a purist and a completist, and I scoff at anyone who wants to be a Doctor Who fan or <laughs> want even even wants to watch the new stuff without uh, going back and watching the old stuff. And I wouldn't, I mean, to me, when I was first starting out as a fan, I wanted to go back and see that early stuff more than anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I also think that if you're looking for intelligent television, you know, you're, Doctor Who's pretty high quality stuff. I mean, it's not always perfect, and there's some really dumb moments in there. But overall, it, it's top drawer stuff as far as I'm concerned. And I, I, I just can't imagine watching even the new series and not going back and revisiting or visiting for the first time the original stuff. And as far as advice, I'm going to give a piece of advice that I've never followed, but I've been told that Old Who is better swallowed in small bites so that rather than watching a whole serial in one go, and of course you can't, you couldn't possibly watch Master Plan or something in, in one go. Oh, you can, but it'd be difficult. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it takes real commitment. But that you should watch an episode or two a night, you know, or uh, an episode or two a week, you know, and, and enjoy the series the way it was, the way it was originally intended, you know, as a, as a serial over 52 weeks or, or whatever rather than trying to force it into the mold of, of modern TV. You know, I found, actually, with Beth, that that worked far better. She, she found the 60s stuff hard-going anyway, and so she didn't completely watch all of those with me. But I found that once I switched from trying to do, like, a whole serial in a go to episodic, that she was watching a lot more and would stay with it. So I would agree that I think that... I mean, it's because only it's a 25-minute commitment. I mean, it's not that much time, you know, for someone to take to watch it. And then the cliffhangers also have a little more resonance because we all together, the cliffhangers can sometimes feel tedious instead of part of the story. Yes, they're breaking up the story rather than mm-hmm. rather enhancing it. Yes. Right, and, and, and especially when the cliffhangers are cheats. Looking at you, Genesis of the Daleks, episode three, <laughs> when Sarah Jane falls, apparently falls off the, the missile and it turns out that actually she just kind of like fell to a ledge that's like two feet below. <laughs> <laughs> or trial of a time lord where there's a close-up on uh, Colin yes. <laughs> yeah so uh anyway but yes yeah I, I i would actually attest to that because i have actual experience with it uh showing it to my wife so i think it does work and uh mike um recommend this era to people and if so uh, do you have any advice uh, for people who might be coming to it from the new series Oh yeah, any of my uh, new friends that I try that start getting into the Doctor Capaldi, it's like, come on, man, let me just watch the it, when you get a chance. I don't really stress it upon them, but it's like if you want to learn more, especially about the Daleks, in which that's where people start getting interested in when I, when we have discussions. I was like, you gotta start with the first Doctor. Just I just tell them, Garden, <laughs> just 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 sit down nice and tight and. Prepare for the ride and just grit your teeth, buddy. Just grit it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> safety first. Yeah, safety well, first. yeah, safety first. It's a good example. You know, the one thing that I'm going to say, you know, as much as it might be difficult for someone to come to 
Doctor Who uh, from a more modern context. And this is realizing that at least about me is that I'm like Eric. You know, this happened with my love of comics as well. It's like, if I know there's a rich history behind something, that's not a turnoff for me. That's something that makes me more interested of, oh, you know, I can look back at all these other things and learn the whole story of it. And so to me, that's just more story to consume, which is better to me than, you know, there's just a few episodes and that's all I get to watch. Uh, or a few, you know, comics that I get to read or whatever. And also, I'm up watching older television you know, I was a little more prepared for it. But, you know, the one thing I will say about the first Doctor's era is that the show has never been more magical. And what I mean by that is that as the Doctor progressed, especially the Doctor's era, the Doctor became an expert on just about everything in the universe. But in the 60s series, for both the first two Doctors, a lot of the times they're just exploring and learning things for the first time. And so mm. there's the discovery and wonder that I think is stronger in those earlier stories, because once the Doctor becomes a walking encyclopedia of the universe, you know, I, I've met every civilization, I know every, you know, I get that there are stories that will happen where he'll see something new or whatever, but for the most part, the Doctor knows everything about every era. And, you know, I mean, that's all lost. And for the first Doctor's era, I think that's really front and center. It is about exploration, it is about, you know, learning free and all of that, and I like that aesthetic to the show so for me that would be the one thing i would say to suggest to people you know give this a try but look at it more as you know a, it's, it's a bit of a different show than what the show has done here so you have to have that you know prepared both from how it was produced as well as you know just what the point of the show was and what it was trying to convey i think we better wrap things out now since it is getting a little bit long i have really enjoyed talking about doctor who with the three of you and thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, it's great. I'm glad. Thanks for making my uh, first podcast great. And thanks to both of the uh, Mike and Michael. I appreciate that. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a pleasure. Uh, are we going to get back together and do the second Doctor and all the... You're getting a little bit ahead of me here, Eric. I was going to let you each now sign off and let people know if there's anything that you want to plug. So, uh, Eric, do you, <laughs> why don't you sign out, uh, you know, say goodbye to people and uh, people know if there's anywhere that you can be found or anything you want to plug. Well, thanks a lot and goodbye. And I don't have much to plug at the moment. So uh, go read your history, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is total aside, but do you remember the show Voyagers? Yes. That ended like every episode with it's all in books. <laughs> That's what that oh. felt like to me. <laughs> Gosh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I actually have the DVD set because that's what I remember fondly from my childhood. But anyway, <laughs> Michael, why don't you sign out and let people know where they could find you and if you have anything to plug. Yeah, it's definitely been a pleasure to be here. This was a definitely a fun, fun discussion. If you want to hear more of my podcasting exploits, the best place to find me is on the Chronic Network. That's at www.chronicrift.com. I'm the host of the Weekly Podioplex, which is a uh, podcast about movies and television news. Talk about the box office, what's coming up, and uh, a little bit of extra stuff there with my co-host. Also, you know, as I talked about a few different times during this podcast, uh, I am the uh, author of the Timestamps Project, where I am indeed watching Doctor Who from the very beginning, serial by serial, and talking about those going on that journey. That's at creativecriticality.wordpress.com. All right, and Mike, uh, why don't you say goodbye and uh, let people know where they can find you and if you have anything you want to plug. Yeah, and just like the guys, I had a great time talking about William Hartnell. He's a great guy, great guy. Can't wait. 
you can find me over on the Twitter at this is Trex, and also over on my website at trexlight.com and over on my YouTube channel where I play a bunch of video games and do guides and stuff over at youtube.com slash trexlight. And that's it for our foray into the Hartnell era. I am really sorry about the sound issues with that podcast. I know that we've had quite a few episodes that have had sound issues. I really need to make sure that they don't happen again, but obviously I can't do anything about ones that are already recorded. All that I can say is that we should have some coming up, a good number of the ones coming up that won't have that same sort of clipping on the words. Uh, That makes it hard sometimes to tell what people are saying because we'll lose half a word or a whole word. Uh, But I do also want to thank Eric, Mike, and Michael for joining me on the podcast. It was really good having them on to talk about this, and I'm hoping that they will come back to do my episodes about the other Doctors, because I definitely want to get through them all. So, look for that to come up in the near future. As always, you can leave us feedback in a whole bunch of ways. You can email us at everything at 42cast.com. You can visit our website at 42cast.com. You can tweet to us at at 42cast. You can visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. And you can also leave us reviews on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. It's been a while since we've gotten a new review from anybody. So if you're listening to this and you are even halfway inclined to do a review, go ahead and do it. You know, I want to hear from people. I want to know what they like about the show and what they don't like about the show. So please do that. I also want to mention the ESO Patreon uh, patreon.com slash ESO network that helps all the shows on the station. So, you know, uh, if you like any of our shows, mine, other people's, everybody's check that out. See if you can contribute a little bit. You will get access to some exclusive episodes and you're supporting keeping us on the air, which is awesome. I will be at Chicago TARDIS next week. I do have my panel schedule, which I don't have on me though. I will uh, mention that next week because that one's a little more tied in with Chicago TARDIS anyway. But just so you know, I'm doing a bunch of panels on both Friday and Saturday. For some reason, I'm not doing any on Sunday. It's just the way that the schedule worked out. So again, if you ever hear me on a panel or you see my name in a panel guide or whatever, you want to drop by, say hi to me, go ahead. I don't mind. And I always love to hear from people that are listening to the show. So that's all for our William Hartnell adventure this week. Join us back next week when Wendy Padbury will be joining us because I interviewed her last year at Chicago TARDIS and I'm going to get to play the interview. So that's going to be amazing. She is a wonderful guest and you will hear more about that next week. So until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast, copyright 2019. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 cast is a proud member of the ESO network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, 
which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.